you're listening to the Unsung Podcast, where we talk about albums that we think are unsung classics, and then you guys tell us if you're right or wrong. This is the Unsung Podcast. Podcast. On last week's episode, we were discussing Glass Swords by Rusty, and the public decided that this record does indeed make it into our discography, so thank you very much to everybody who listened and to everybody who voted. On this episode, we're talking about Mitt Gas by Tomahawk. Hi, you're listening to Unsung Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Fraser, and I'm joined by two men who are in Mike Patton's new musical project. Who isn't in Mike Patton's new musical project? That is something we'll find out today. I actually quit and then restarted. So as someone else. Yeah. He still doesn't know it's you. Yep. To my right is somebody that would actually give all of his limbs to be in a Mike Patton project. Chris Cusack. He's Glasgow's Mike Patton, basically. <laughs> How many octaves can you sing? Not point five. <laughs> 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 Stephen Hawking range <laughs> yeah, Two notes I can't sing And to my left is a guy who's got a pretty big mouth For a lad sitting in a velour tracksuit <laughs> I, I'll have you know this is the best purchase I have ever made The famous Weaver velour tracksuit I actually like that tracksuit but we've got to pick something Do you know what, One, I went back into the shop which will remain nameless for reasons of credibility. <laughs> uh, and uh, they actually had the trousers to go with this and they were half price and I didn't buy them. And I, to, to this day, I, I regret that. I wish I had the full velour tracksuit, but I don't. I've told you about what happened to me in secondary school with the tracksuit, right? Mm, maybe I've blanked that memory. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's just get us out of the road. Okay. So I was like, this is, this is going to be hard to believe guys, but. I was a bit of a geek. Ah, <laughs> fuck, I guessed it. I know, I know. Try and imagine if you there will. There was me thinking King Jock. People, people actually picked on me. Unreal, I know. unreal. They were just behind the times, weren't they? It's yeah. They, you were you know, ahead of the curve. Character building. Yeah. Um, the sad fact is, though, the primary school I went to had uh, what I would say is like a wine maroon kind of uniform scheme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you're a kid and one of the things came out was like a, a jogging suit, would you call it? Like a kind of school colour jogging suit, which is fine when you're in primary school, you look like a dweeb anyway. Yeah. And I'd committed far worse fashion faux pas uh, in primary school, such as yellow and white egg coloured trainers <laughs> <laughs> labelled Pan Am and bought from pound stretchers. Oh, wow. By parents that surely should have been done for child abuse <laughs> for that alone. And uh, well enough that they would go down really well. Hey, there you go. Now, they would go down really they would well. Go down really well. <laughs> like a Pan Am flight. Yeah. 
which is exactly what even children at that age realised. So, running by them in the gym hall. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing was uh, what my dad labelled a unisex shell suit when shell suits were in. It was clearly not unisex. Or if by uni it meant one. (laughs) And that one sex was not male. (laughs) And then... Monosex. Yeah, and through, through guilt, I was like, well, I have to wear this. My parents spent what was a comparably large sum of money on it. And But funnily enough, this all served to undermine me, and I'm sure that wouldn't have happened otherwise, because as you guys know, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty important. Yeah, you're a, you're a powerful man. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so the, the wine-coloured jogging suit, not a million miles away from the one you're wearing. Buckfast coloured. That's Buckfast coloured. It is actually. Buckfast. So it hides the stains for yeah. Dave when he's on yeah, the Yeah, I never have to wash this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I went to high school, and... Whoa, coincidence. The high school colours are the same as our primary school colours. Uh-huh. I know what's a good idea in second year when you're probably at the point of your life when you're growing the fastest uh, that you'll ever grow. <laughs> I, I just happen to be the only person in this school with jogging bottoms that match the top, so I'm going to wear them. Oh, wow. <laughs> so did you, you did that deliberately? I did it deliberately because I was trying things out. You know, you're young, you're like, maybe this will be what unlocks popularity. Maybe this will get the You did all your fashion experimenting before you were 18, and you've been wearing the same plaid shirt since. And the consequences (laughs) of that played a large part in the man I am now. (laughs) And everybody that hates me is going, ah! Ah, I understand. (laughs) There you go. Oh well. My uh, full full disclosure, yeah. That's the story time with Christopher Kiyosaki. My high school fashion faux pas was I had a really bright yellow jacket. My dad insisted on a good winter jacket, but also, I don't know if he liked bright colours or I liked bright colours, but we got a big bright yellow jacket for me. And the uh, the bridge over the railway that you went to high school, um, you had at one end of the bridge was where all the smokers and hard people would hang out. And you'd just try your best to get past there without them noticing and shouting abuse at you. Uh, one day it was snowing, I was walking past them with my best friend Grant. And there, me with my bright yellow jacket, trying to get past the smokers in the morning on the way to school without making, drawing attention to myself. In the snow, for some reason, I just decide to like clip or put my foot in a step and I just take an absolute fucking tumble head over heels, (laughs) head first into the snow, a yellow jacket drawing attention (laughs) and every single smoker and bully within 50 yards just like your man in The Simpsons, Nelson, just about 50. <laughs> uh, and Grant will never let me live that down to See, this day. So When, yeah. when you ah. started that story, I was just... Uh, you ever seen the film Don't Look Now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just envisaging you as this little... As a little kind of like spectre. Scary dwarf. Yeah. I was actually um, of average height, so... <laughs> <laughs> Although there was somebody in my school called Donald Sutherland, so, you know... No, there wasn't. There was. That'd be too much. Do you know what? There was a guy in the year above me in primary school called David Bowie. 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 Well, he was called Bowie because he tried to be different from... Different. Because obviously that's what you do is try and be different from David Bowie. Yeah. Rather than leaning right into it and being like, I'm David Bowie. He had a mullet and his sister slapped me once for no reason. Anyway. No reason. Cool. Well, no reason. It was on my seventh birthday. Where there's smoke, there's fire. You know. Anyway. It's been uh, wonderful getting to know you guys. Should we talk about Tomahawk record now? Oh, do Tomahawk, we have to? So I'm Tomahawk, just Tomahawk. enjoying this chat. Yeah, it's, it's good, right? Um, Tomahawk is my choice, and I'm pretty psyched about this one. Um, What's the album called? The album is called Midgas. Oh, 
and do you have to say it like that? Yeah. Okay, cool. It's uh, German just, for just so I know in future with gas. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it will be contentious because so many people are so married to the first Tomahawk album, Eponymous. Uh, also, the album after this was called Anonymous, and yeah. so the box set was called Eponymous to Anonymous, which is, if not on purpose, pretty cool. I'd like to put my cards on the table right now and say the people who think the first record are better are fucking wrong. Yeah, I mean, that's... that's yeah, is that, order does degrees. that appear to be the... It's a common general consensus. That the first Tomahawk album is very, very good. But, but hear me out, hear me out. So got got like a little plan here, right? So there's a little bit about Tomahawk because I don't want to talk too much about Mike Patton because Mike Patton has done so much. Yeah. We, we even debated whether to include this because we were going to do a Mike Patton episode mm-hmm. and actually we kind of still could. I'd quite like to do one on his other projects. Um, but Tomahawk, I think, deserves an episode to itself because he's done a lot of very esoteric music and yet he... Uh, Faith No More aside, uh, Tomahawk is probably the point where he's most brilliantly brought together some of his more more eccentric tendencies, and probably that's got a lot to do with Dwayne Dennison. Um, I, there was a Sonic.net had done a, a feature on Tomahawk, and they, they, they put it really nicely, saying uh, at points in Mike Patton's career, his music had so much integrity that he'd never be listenable again. And uh, Tomahawk was the, the band that sort of helped kind of reverse that trend a little bit. And he's an he's, a, he's an excellent musician, an excellent guy, but just prone to some flights of fancy that don't always work out. Some that very much do work out. Mm. I certainly remember I must have been like sixteen or seventeen, and uh, really loving Faith No More and getting into the first Tomahawk record and going, oh, I should really delve deep into Mike Patton. And I think I must have like pirated his whole discography off LimeWire or something. Good luck with that. And uh, my god, <laughs> it was a an ocean of um, weird and wonderful and some terrible work as well. Yeah, I mean, some of it is absolutely bizarre. Uh, he, I love that it, it exists. And I mean, I'm sure it was not lost in you how good his collaboration was with Dillinger Escape Plan. An absolute peak, yeah. I really, really like that EP. Really, it could be the best thing Dylan Escape Plan ever did. Yeah, it really brought out some of the best in each other. And actually, that's what they sounded like. That's what the vocals have sounded like ever since. Pretty much on. Yeah, I mean, I I honestly think that um, Greg tried to really copy Mike Patton. Yeah, uh, Dimitri was so different in his approach, and I think Greg just sort of sounded like he was a muscly imitation. Yeah, ripped Patton a little. Tomahawk have. Exceptional caliber, like as a band. I mean, like Dwayne Dennison, John Stanier, Stanier, Stanier. We'll go with Stanier. Mike Patton, uh, Kevin Ritmanis initially, although it, it became Trevor Dunn uh, on bass in 2013. Between those five contributors, you had Helmet, Jesus Lizard, Faith No More, Melvins, Phantomass, Mister Bungle, and Battles. Just seven uh, 
of many more projects that they took part in. Um, you've got like cows on the edge of that as well. You've got Mike Patton obviously doing stuff with Dillinger. So, so many excellent, accomplished like touchstones of like the mid to late nineties and onwards, like bands that really changed the musical landscape. And some of whom are still about and still doing exceptionally good stuff. Uh, Melvins have probably as strong as they ever were in battles. I don't know what they're going to do next, but they're constantly evolving. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, as a band, it's kind of like a dream lineup. It's like fantasy football in terms of pulling together your supergroup. Patton and Dennison originally started Tomahawk really based on a conversation at a Mr. Bungle show, one of Mike Patton's other bands, in Nashville in 1999. I think Patton brought Kevin McManus to the table, who'd been in Melvin's, and I think, as far as I understand it, Dwayne Dennison brought John Stanier to the table and... That was the team. They all went down to Nashville, recorded this album. I think it only took about two weeks to do the debut album. And it caused a fair splash when it landed in like 2001. Uh, people were really impressed and pleased to see Mike Patton doing something that was channeling some of the more musical sensibilities that he'd shown in Faith No More. Accessible. Which had, yeah, which had split in 1998. I remember seeing it come out. I remember uh, being a bit in Krang and then being effusive about the fact that it was, you know, this super project by this, you know, super group, I guess. Uh, they, had a, they had a nice aesthetic as well. It was pretty unconventional. Obviously, it's bass, guitar, drums. But Mike Patton has this, like, effect set up so his vocals become much more than just vocals. Apart from the fact that he's an incredible and astonishingly diverse singer, he also has a lot of kit, loopers, samplers, things like that, that augment the music substantially. It really it wouldn't sound the same. When you start listening through the records for the samples and stuff that he's doing as well, you realise how crucial they are to the atmospherics of it and how much extra depth they give it. So it's a really evenly balanced and... Very, very... I think it's really interesting that this band is a supergroup and how it suffers from that as well, though, in that, you know, maybe, you know, we've taken it to the table as an unsung record. Do you think if this record or, you know, Tomahawk's discography had come from a band who were not known for anything else and developed this sound and had an organic fan base... Uh, do you think they'd be bigger than they are rather than this sort of side project because that's what I, I really like them because they've got this they, they nail what they want to be it's got this sound that's completely their own but I think to a lot of people because they're a side project or a super group it doesn't have that same idea of being its own somehow I know I what you know. mean yeah I think they might have been there might have been a bigger wow factor if you didn't already have such high expectations yeah that said I mean, for example, the first album, there's, there's countless bands have produced very, very impressive first albums and have struggled to get off the boards. Or the first album has been kind of noticed, but sort of underappreciated, and therefore they just never get the critical mass of being able to tour and these big... So the fact that they had big names generated a lot of interest off the bat. It possibly... Yeah, I mean, it certainly... Uh, no matter what, they were going in at a certain level yeah. and they were going to achieve a certain level of recognition no matter what. 
but it's maybe their the long term recognition of their place in music that maybe suffers. Yeah, it's maybe a mixed bag. You're right. It, it maybe gave them that initial advantage, but then in the long term, it maybe detracted from the wow factor of just being a holy shit. This band is absolutely incredible, and it points. This band is absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um. As far as I understand it, with Tomahawk, Dwayne Dennison, who was a guitarist in Jesus Lizard, uh, and for my money, one of the the best guitarists of all time. Uh, he seems to write the bulk of the ideas and then brings them to Patton. Uh, after the fact, Patton sort of starts adding vocals, kind of refining them, maybe there's a bit of give and take, and then they take them to the floor with Stanny and Rip Manis or Trevor Dunn, as it may be. Uh, so it does seem to come from, from Dwayne Dennison, and Dwayne Dennison knows the craft of writing a song because as abrasive and awkward as Jesus Lizard could be, they were also quite into brevity, generally speaking. Again, as, as weird as they were, they kind of stuck by verse, chorus, verse, chorus quite often. Um, he has a, he has a good sense of structure. Uh, also, J, uh, Dwayne Dennison is an exceptionally good guitarist, and I think for me personally, with my tastes in it, he is one of the best guitarists of all time. Uh, I think he's probably very underrated. Uh, he's technically brilliant. He was a jazz guitarist and has done session work for a number of people of like high profile people in that scene. Uh, and the way he plays, the style he plays, it's not overplayed, but it, it comes from a place of extreme competence. The, 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 the touch, the timing, the ability to, to get expression into his playing is the kind of thing you can only do if you are that good, but playing within what the song needs. The thinking man's Ingrid Malmsteen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, and easier to say. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of Dwayne Dennison, and I think his influence shines through in this quite a bit and when they're at their best is quite often when he's at his best on their tracks uh, I love Patton but as you said about downloading some of Patton's stuff sometimes his sense of adventure and his experimentation overrides the, the musicality of what he's doing um, obviously with uh, Tomahawk you also have John Stanier who is an unbelievably good drummer Yes, uh, not just an unbelievably technically good drummer but an unbelievable writer of drum lines. Like some of the most memorable beats I think I've ever heard, given my tastes in music at least. But, but he's also got just such a, a vibe and a f- swing and a feeling to it. Yeah. I mean, the, the fact that he went from like chuggy, almost metallic rock. this Electro project seamlessly and it still sounds like him it still sounds like the same drummer here he doesn't feel like he's had to kind of squeeze himself into someone else's suit Uh, it's pretty astonishing and bass-wise, Kevin McManus played in Cows and Melvins. He's a great bass player, really fits the role. And Trevor Dunn, who Patton had already played with in Mr. Bungle and Phantomass, was a very, very good choice for a replacement later on. Mm-hmm. 
like skipping through their their, their catalogue to give a wee bit of context because they're a band that only has uh, four records uh, and as it turns out one EP that they tacked on the end uh, their eponymous record Tomahawk landed in 2001 it was not long after that they actually ended up touring with Tool although supposedly getting into constant conflict with the crowd yeah, apparently Tool fans are not the most open minded apparently that's who would have thought <laughs> you know because Tool is the, the surely the final end game of the thinking man's music but apparently not apparently they're just idiots you just want no Tool and that's it I, I mean I'm not going to go to the mat for Tool fans but I do think that Tomahawk did a fair bit of like antagonising them <laughs> from what I understand you can imagine Mike Patton doing that <laughs> you can imagine, imagine all of them doing that <laughs> it, also, it reminds me of when Dillinger Escape Plan supported uh, System of a Down exactly exactly. And it's like oh System of a Down are a weird band and it's like no you can get much weirder <laughs> <laughs> and much much more offensive like yeah. just just really when you just don't give a shit what people think of you and there's like a core contingent in that audience that will think you're the best thing they've ever seen mm-hmm. as well and that's really us that's worth like, it we've always been those guys <laughs> yeah, exactly. that were like the support band that everybody hated you were like wow <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so tomahawk the the debut landed in 2001 uh it's, it's a very brittle album um very angular yeah i would say sharp is the word sharp is a good word for it yeah it's like abrasive uh albeit with tunefulness that's woven through it but i think the tunefulness is less present than it is for example on Gas. and i think just off the bat that is one of the things that gives it the edge for me uh, it's, it's very slightly over long it does dip towards the end a bit there's some really great tracks though there, there's some standout identifiable tomahawk moments uh, the track called 101 north and it's the the, the song the kind of song that only really Dwayne Dennison could write can really hear him coming through in that it's got this really kind of crisp almost like metallic guitar line kind of punky metallic guitar line but it's overlaid with this very reverby very delayed atmospheric countryish, the kind of thing you could almost do in a slide guitar and that's kind of a that's sort of a, a theme of his playing he, he mixes a lot of really disparate influences in what he does uh, there's a song called point and click which really reminded me a lot of a track called Eucalyptus on a Jesus Lizard album called Blue in terms of its feel. And the falsetto uh, by Patton in that also contributes to that. Um, the standout track in this album, and I, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, th- I would say it's probably God Hates a Coward. It's certainly the one that I had downloaded from LimeWire and was on my 32 megabyte MP3 player <laughs> back in the day. One of eight songs. That I had to yeah, choose my nine songs to go and mow the lawn to. Um, that song is the epitome of this band. Certainly at this stage... The very patient kind of Jesus Lizard style verse, uh, Patton using the CB radio, uh, the chorus being really strong, probably the strongest melodic moment on the album, I think. Um, the way it explodes out, there's also like the cheekiness, there's like a theremin, I think, well, I think it's a theremin, 
that it kind of weaves in and out of the the choruses as well. Um, and that's that's a super track if you're trying to get into this band. If you want to be introduced to them, I'd, I'd recommend "God Takes a Coward" as like a, an entry point. There's tracks like "Sir Yes Sir," which for people that love Tomahawk is a very very identifiable moment. But it's more about Mike Patton fucking about with vocal ideas. Mike Patton being Mike Patton. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a cool thing he does in the chorus. It's a, it's it's a fun, novel, really well executed idea. But musically, it doesn't make me want to re-listen. Yeah, yeah, it's very immediate, but you're like, oh, right, that's done. Exactly. Not going to listen to that again. It's a balance that was waiting to be improved for my Mm -hmm. guess. Uh, There's there's tracks like Jockstrap, which is, again, quite an iconic one, the way it it does the sort of typical kind of pattern seediness. Not just Pat and Sidney, like Denison loves that that shtick as well, uh, and then kind of, sort of seamlessly edges into punk rock. I mean, Patton is quite a seedy guy. He is quite a seedy guy, yeah. He loves playing off that image, mm-hmm. the slick back hair, the suits. Uh, in the video for Evidence by Faith No More, he's like wandering about, swilling red wine around in a glass and raising his eyebrow to the camera. And when stuff. Faith No More came back on their reunion tours, like they were all like dressed in like horrible suits and just looking like the most dodgy guys in the world. Again, I'm gonna I'm gonna stand by that. I like late, late, I like it. I think it's cool. Man. I love that stuff. He's got a weird obsession with uh, poo as well, doesn't he? I think he did like to shit on stage. Yeah. Um. He said something. I think he shat in a hairdryer once. He did. <laughs> and he, he said that a million flies can't be wrong because you know they love poo. So he, he shat in a hairdryer so somebody would turn it on and blow it all over their head. Yeah. And I think was there not a story about somebody having done that and they were perpetually after them ever after. <laughs> I, we should have looked this up Maybe <laughs> save that for a Mike Patton episode Yeah I think so um, the, the, This album sags a wee bit That's the only thing There's a track called Cul-de-sac Malocchio Honeymoon They all kind of come back to back And I think it It didn't need them Or it, it didn't need all of them I don't think any of them Bring anything brilliant to the table But it does pick back up again With a track called Laredo That has this legendary uh, Vocal line uh, The cat's in the bag And the bag's in the river What's that other tune, Mark? You mentioned the lyrics earlier on. Uh, the lyric is... Uh, this beat will win me the Grammy. Grammy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, it, I think this is a great album. And but what they did after this was that they took these ideas... Uh, and they were there to be improved upon, and they did. They, they strengthened the underlying songs, they strengthened the melodies, uh, and I think ultimately uh, Mick Gass invites more listens. It just it, it bears it better. Yeah, it's basically a lot more. It feels like a band, right? Like the first record is like a band fighting their feet. The second band is like the band actually. Yeah, it's a lot more fully formed. Yeah. What they want to be direct. They're yeah. like straight to the point. This is the band we are. We're not fucking about it anymore. They're not experimenting. They're yeah. like. We know what we are. Yeah, they definitely like settled into their their uh, roles and the groove more for the second one. 
Now, they then skipping past that, in 2007 brought out a record called Anonymous, yeah. which uh, is pretty widely considered something of a misfire. Mm. And I was really excited about this album coming out because I was a big fan of the first two. Uh, the concept is based around Native American music. Mm-hmm. just felt more typically Mike Patton. Mm -hmm. Now uh, I don't really know a lot about the writing process for that album but it did feel like it was different Yeah, because something didn't work. The concept overrode the music quite substantially Mm -hmm. and I mean did did you guys look into the history of that album at all? Yeah so like uh, Dwayne Denniston he plays quite a lot with Hank Williams III which is just strange Uh, but he did a tour of Indian reservations, and um, apparently that's where he came up with a lot of ideas for this music. He was going to, was he's seen loads of bands playing with Hank Williams, and they were like like in the American bands, but they were just playing like rock music and southern influenced country music. And he's like, mm-hmm. I actually want to hear proper Native American music. Well, apparently, apparently the anonymous in the record is um, the original Native American writers of some of these melodies that he's like heard on, you know mouth flute and stuff like that and then built upon yeah some of them were just like so. two notes and all that and then like he's written the music and then him and Stanier and and uh, Rick Manis would record it and then they give it to Mike Patton who then do the vocals in, uh, in San Francisco and record all those extra parts as well and kind of tease it out a bit more so it sounds like a, a much more involved process but that, that that does make sense because it's definitely it doesn't sound like Tomahawk, really. Yeah. There's there's moments on it. The Cradle song is the one track I feel could have sat quite comfortably in some of their other records. But I really feel like the concept overrode the, the product here, and it's a shame. And I, th- I found the album overall quite disappointing. And I you think like this? I thought it was quite. Well, I thought I, I went. I went so much say I liked it, but I thought it was really interesting. I thought like I thought it was really engaging. It's unlike anything I'd really heard before. Um, I was doing things which I just haven't heard bands do. You know, probably because of the nature of the music. That was before I actually looked into what like what the music like why it sounded so weird compared to the other stuff and the other two albums and um. Yeah, just it kind of was like, oh, that's actually quite an interesting idea. I was certainly like Chris and excited about this record coming out because I really liked the first two, and then I just never got into it. So maybe I maybe I need to go back and give it another go. But I mean, I'd I'd give it another go for this, obviously, and I just was reassured that my impressions of it were pretty decent. There, are, I mean, I got I got a little bit more out of it because you didn't have that initial. I was really disappointed when it mm-hmm. came out. I was really yeah, the Untouchables effect. How I felt when Corn's Untouchables came out. That's, that's <laughs> like a shearing disappointment. I can't of, believe I didn't immediately a, know what you a meant. Great, <laughs> of a great band suddenly not being great anymore. I mean, I, I came, I've come to this band having not heard them before, you know, and I just took their entire, like, discography as as is, you know, and tempered with the expectations of, like, expecting another massive record that's amazing after my gas. I mean, I can totally imagine that, right? Yeah. I mean... It, it does, it, I'd waited four years for this yeah, album. It, pale, it definitely pales in comparison, my guess. There's nowhere near on that level. If I was a huge fan of the band and I was in your position and you heard it, 
I would probably be pretty pissed off as well. I will say, like, like I said, going back to it, I'm not as down on it because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm appraising it more on its own merits and not on the merits of a guy who's like, oh, God, this isn't what I was waiting four years for. Um, but I really, I, I don't think it's up there. Now, they took a hiatus. Now, Ritmanis actually left during that album and it's never really been particularly clear why he left and if it was a, just a musical difference, then it would make sense. Um, they replaced him with Trevor Bunn and in 2013 brought out a record called Oddfellows. Now, I wasn't massively familiar with Oddfellows and it's very, very much a return to the vibe of what they were doing before. Mm-hmm. I quite like it. I, I, I think it's um, it's not as good as Mick Gas. It's more polished, and certainly on the back of Anonymous, sounds all the more polished. Yeah. Nay, commercial at times because Anonymous is so out there. Mm-hmm. Um, the track Stone Letter, which they put a video out for, is I think trying to do what Rape This Day does on Mick Gas in a far more shiny and melodic vein. Yeah, even popular. Yeah. The, the the title track's really good. It's a uh, really meandering kind of uh, asynchronous uh, guitar bass thing, uh, which is very Dwayne Dennison. The track called "A Thousand Eyes." which I think is also Dwayne Dennison, maybe some of his understated kind of best. Very melodic, but eerie. Again, a bit like that track Eucalyptus from Blue, which is a really standout moment, albeit it comes in an album by Jesus Lizard that people aren't generally very keen on. So dis- so distinctive, it's such an, an interesting bit of music, and this this track really brought that back to mind. It, it does have a lot more overt jazz moments on it, like they're they're not subtle. They're like this is this is the jazz bit, you know. It's it's and it's not integrated into some kind of alternate. It's literally just here's a minute of jazz, mm-hmm. um, which yeah, it's a little bit more ham fisted. But I, I was impressed. I mean, did you listen to the Oddfellas album? I found I just kind of passed me by a little bit, to be honest. Maybe I was just a bit burnt out and listened to Tomahawk after listening to Anonymous because I listened to them back to back, but it just didn't grab me the same way my gas in the first record did. Do you know what was interesting is that they like changed their aesthetic for it. Like, um, it's the first album cover that didn't feature sort of gritty old western yeah, iconography true, or whatever. It's, it's got little drawings of animals with one eye. Yeah, kind of cartoonish, and yeah. it's still slightly. It looks like a maybe a a safety kids sheet for a playground in the midwest so it still has a slight you know american west thing to it because it's got these animals and what have you but you know previous it's a lot more fun for some reason the album cover than the previous three which are all very on a theme i I think tomahawk as well when they first started had this thing of always going on stage dressed as cops Mm -hmm. it was Mm -hmm. just in all their, their early photos as well they were dressed as cops and it was Fucking cool. It was like odd and cool and really worked 
with a band it was just they just had a really good eye for aesthetics mm-hmm. they really did yeah, I found that it was a bit, it was a bit incongruous that that one, the the, the cover of Oddfellows. However, the video for the track Oddfellows takes that theme because the animals in the cover have a single eye, and the video for Oddfellows is brilliant. It's really unsettling. It's like live concert footage, but like John Stanier's got one eye, and mm. it, and it's just and there's like drawings appearing over Mike Patton's face and stuff. I really like that, and it seems more in keeping with them. It's a bit darker, not too fussy. Could we maybe? Uh... Go into a little nexus there. Yeah. Because you've talked right into my nexus. Well, that's a good time to do it, actually, because I think we're about to, after that, jump headlong into what's going to be a quite entertaining discussion of supergroups, highs and lows. So, yeah, nexus, Fritz music. It's the Unsung Podcast. Dave Grohl Nexus need to find a way to connect the show to that guy. For playing in the Nirvana, to hanging with Obama, he knows lots of folk, so stands to reason we'll find a way. It's the Unsung Podcast. Dave Grohl Nexus Don't take too long Alright, you guys ready? Are you ready? Here we go! Gets better every time. Yeah, it does. It doesn't get old. Let's just play a clip of it on the way out, though. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not test the theory of it not getting old. Yeah, okay. Um, okay. Can I start on the Nexus because you you started my first one. Keenan's master, David. So, uh, Tomahawks. Uh, video for Oddfellows and also another two, Stone Letter and Southpaw, uh, were directed uh, by a man called Vince Forcier, who is a... Uh, a filmman, a filmman, a lensman <laughs> uh, from Florida. Uh, and he's directed a couple of music videos, not done too much, but he was in the editorial department of uh, Crank 2, High Voltage. Whoa. <laughs> Mike Patton did the soundtrack. He did, yeah. Uh, yeah, so another link to uh, that, you know, starring the great Jason Statham, mm. an absolute legend of his time. Good movie uh, as well. Jason Statham, of course, came to prominence in, uh, with... In Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels mm-hmm. uh, He was a good pal of uh, Nick Moran's character, he, Eddie He was a, an Olympic swimmer He was, he was in the Commonwealth Games in 1990 I think mm-hmm. Now Sting was in Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels All kinds of folk were in that stuff Yeah, the Guy Ritchie films, there's all manner of cameos Yeah, still loved, Sting I think still loved most for its beating the shit out of a traffic warden scene uh, who was Rob Bryden was the yeah. traffic warden uh, beating the shit out of Rob Bryden as well yeah. almost as uh, an absolute <laughs> treat uh, but of course Sting was uh, Nick Moran's dad and uh, Sting I like you saying was of course like I fucking knew that <laughs> uh, I thought Sting, Sting only had tantric sex I thought he didn't come that was his whole point he, what, he bo- used to boast that he could have sex for hours and not ejaculate like he could orgasm without ejaculating yeah, well, I, I never said anything about him not having tantric sex. Where did Nick Moran? And day... his, he he was in a film, not his real child. Oh, he, <laughs> he played his father. Let's see, there we go. But I'm pretty sure Sting has children, does he not? Possibly. Yeah. Before, he's, he's, before, he's, before he, he got into uh, 
uh, Trudy, maybe, maybe, Trudy. Maybe. before he got into Trudy, basically, <laughs> and never got out of her after 30 years. <laughs> things, yeah, anyway, yeah. Um, Weeks at a time. Now, in 2007, Sting was joined by Kanye West and John Meyer and the rest of the police and sang Message in a Bottle for Live Earth. So that would have been exciting, wouldn't wow. it? John Meyer, he's a lad. John Mayer. I thought John Mayer. Is it John Mayer? I think it's John Mayer, yeah. John Mayer, I hope. Can't give a shit to be honest. You know that the police are going to appear later on in this show as well. Famously hate each other. <laughs> now, one time this actually happened. Dave Chappelle crashed a John Mayer concert and covered "Come As You Are" by Nirvana. Wow, really? Yeah, that's it's, there's a video of it and everything. And that's wild. Like, yeah, yeah, quite bad. It's pretty cool. And uh, Dave Grohl was in Nirvana. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so, there you are. Go. That's my link. That's, quite, that's quite a good one. There's like some really interesting little trivia moments there, Mark. Yeah. You, you're quite. Uh, I believe you're quite proud of. I've your, got, I've got a pretty decent one. How direct this is? Is it? Is it direct? Kind of. Uh huh. So the drummer and Tomahawk is John Stanier, mm-hmm. as we know. That is true. John Stanier features on a rapper called Cage's debut EP, mm-hmm. which is called Weatherproof. Cage actually had a record produced by LP, which will be, uh, which will make sense as we come further into this episode. Oh, uh, forward-thinking mix is there? <laughs> Look at that. But um. Cage, aside from working from LP, aside from working with LP, had one of his music videos directed. Um, By the way, this is like Nexus Dominoes because I used Tomahawk last week. Yeah, I had a Tomahawk. Oh, wow, yeah. Whoa, See, I was thinking about holy that. Shit, I was thinking about that. Crazy, three dimensional. Yeah, well, yeah. Four, four dimensional. We're, we're getting too good at the Nexus. Yeah, we're, it's becoming a. It's going to swallow the show. Yeah, it's going <laughs> to. Um, Cage had the music video for. Uh, I could know you. I should have known you. It's basically a song about a stalker, and it's directed by Shia LaBeouf. Who directed it when he was 22. It's a pretty cool video, actually. Mm-hmm. He's a mad bastard. Yes. Shia LaBeouf appeared in the X-Files. Do you know who else appeared in the X-Files? Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl Dave was in the band Nirvana. Dave Grohl. Both of us, so there you go. Yeah. That is impressive. That's quite a good one. Mine's really good. Uh-huh. Just putting that out there. Okay, let's hear right. it. Okay, I had to take multiple pages for it, right? So <laughs> excuse the noise. The encyclopedia of Dave uh, Grohl. <laughs> so Mitt Gas was produced by Joe Berizzi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Joe Barese worked with likes of like all manner of people like Tool, L7, Queens of Stone Age, Caius, Melvins, Jesus Lizard, New Model Army, Bad Religion. Uh, he also mixed The Action Is Go by Fu Manchu. Props to you, man, because that's a great record. But, and this is probably the highlight of his career, he also mixed the second album by Swedish band Psychor. <laughs> <laughs> I remember them. They had a big bald man with, yeah. a, with a sharp tattoo. Yeah, the, uh, the album titled I Am Not One of Us, which was an abject disaster, apparently. Um, but the guitarist in that band uh, was Carlos Sepulveda. And according to... I love it when somebody's obviously edited the Wikipedia page and they're clearly uh, either in the band or close mm. to the mum of the band. Uh, he joined, in very commas, the legendary Leather Nun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But actually, it turns out, uh, to be fair, that the Leather Nun are actually a fairly cult Swedish band that did like a hell of a lot of stuff in the 80s. Can we have a sample of Leather Nun right here? So there you go. Uh, every day's a skill day. <laughs> Legendary. Uh, and Leather Nun first started uh, because Genesis P. Orridge uh, had heard some of it and had expressed interest in releasing something on 
uh, industrial records. Uh, by the way, interesting aside, Leather Nun's second record, uh, International Heroes, <laughs> <laughs> produced by none other than Kim Foley, the manager uh, that's uh, used to rape oh, really? a member of the Runaways. Wow. Yeah, there you go. So anyway, Industrial Records, Genesis P. Orridge, Genesis P. Orridge, the poet, musician, artist and occultist, who also was a key member of Throbbing Gristle and Psychic TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, Genesis P. Orridge was also the founder of the Temple of, of OV Psychic, P-S-Y-C-H-I-C-K, Youth, yeah. who practiced both left and right-handed magic. The, the, the Temple of Psychic Youth took a lot of its influences from people like Alistair Crowley, but also William S. Burroughs. The author of Naked Lunch and Junkie, Junkie. Uh, cult figure. Uh, Industrial Records' last ever release was a reissue of tape recorder experiments and spoken word cutouts by William S. Burroughs uh, from the 60s and 70s, when he was clearly at his bin. Genesis P. Orridge actually was photographed by William S. Burroughs in 1981. And in 1993, uh, Tim Kerr Records, <laughs> who also released Everclear and Dandy Warhols, released a vinyl and CD single of something called The Priest They Called Him, which was, I think it's about a 12-minute long short story read by William S. Burroughs and backed by Kurt Cobain freestyling on guitar. And the cover for the CD is also Chris Novoselic dressed as a piece peer no fucking way. Kurt Cobain was a member of the rock group Nirvana, as was Chris Novoselic, and Dave Grohl was a drummer in Nirvana. Wow. That was obscure and great. Yeah. Yeah, good work. Wasn't Thanks. quite the bottom of the bomb bombing, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll factor terrorism in next week. It's actually true. I'm going to factor terrorism in next week. <laughs> Is it 9 11 by any chance? <laughs> it's better. <laughs> I'd never even heard of it. So, there we go. Uh, let's hear a little clip again of uh, Little Nun Phrases. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love the way Dave said that. <laughs> a little, I did a little partridge there, didn't I? Hi, <laughs> beg your pardon for interrupting the show. Have to throw ourselves at your feet and beg for assistance. This is the cash call moment where we say, if you think there is any inherent value in what we're doing, please go to the internet and immediately donate a price that is fitting. Uh, unsungpod.net forward slash donate. We're also kind of open to any feedback now on alternative systems of that very thing. Patreon obviously being one. So if you have any preferences, because some people have gotten in touch off their own backs and that's really pretty handy for us trying to work out uh, the best means going forward Uh, we're probably going to take to the road for a couple of interviews we're probably going to need a little bit of extra tech to try and kit things out for those interviews so donations are always welcome but as are ideas and as are likes and shares obviously because in this ethereal digitized world that we inhabit likes and shares equate with popularity if threatened taught us anything appreciate your time unsungpod.net donate do the decent thing
Tomahawk. So, Mick Gas is a sensationally good album. Yeah, sensationally good album. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that one of the things that makes it sensational is the brevity of it. It's a forty-minute record, which for me is the total sweet spot mm -hmm. for kind of long-form rock music. I mean, it's one. If you're in a punk band, yeah, okay, like 25, 30, 35 is maybe even pushing it. Um, it's an album. It, I feel it's like really, really lean. Yeah. It, Aye, that's a good way of putting it. There's no fat in this record at all. N none of the song. Well, the first song is the only one that goes like past four and a half minutes. Really. Yeah, bird song. Um, starts um, with that, but there's a lot of intro to it. Yeah, so it has that know. really building, creepy, ominous thing with birds tweeting over it, and it's like it's almost like a siren. And one thing this album does better than any of their other albums is use John Stania. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and Birdsong's a good example. When the drums come in kind of on their own, they really get the thing moving. But likewise in track four, Mayday. Likewise in uh, track six, Captain Midnight. The battlesy nature of John Stania's drumming is so effective in a lot of these tunes. Like Birdsong also does something that they try to do in some, like God Hates a Coward for example has that big chorus the chorus in Birdsong does that but it does it I think within the context of a, a stronger record and I, I just, it's, it's a very very big opening statement on it um, and it would have taken some following but following it with Rape This Day which I think is the most succinct and brilliant distillation of this band Yeah, um, it has everything Big riff built up, just quality, great chorus. That really, that that kind of staccato muted guitar mm -hmm. thing that Dwayne Dennison does in, in Rape the Stay throughout the, the verse and the heavily, heavily affected drums, you know, that it's, they're almost like completely random, like the mm -hmm. just just dropping in the background till the, the, the chorus or the pre-chorus really starts to kick in. Like Dennison is an absolute star. See, see, with that song, when it came out, I, I think that's when I realised I was different. But like, <laughs> I was like, this is just pure pop music, but it's heavy and it's aggressive. Yeah. And it's like, this is what music should be. Yeah. And then for some reason, like they didn't become the biggest band in the world. And I was like, what is wrong with people? Because the song's called Rape This Day. <laughs> well, I mean, that is true. But you know, I was just like, this is what I want heavy, but catchy, you know, accessible music to be. That's um, one of the things I think that's happened. Just to come, it kind of comes back to the supergroup thing. See, there's certain supergroups, but when they've got so much star power involved, they never really get past a certain level. Mm -hmm. You know, because like of a band like, for example, I know I brought up Chicken Foot, but I mean, the four guys in that are fucking huge, right? Like they're massive musicians, and they've written three records and they've toured a whole bunch, but they'll never be as big as they are individually. Mm. And because roughly the same but for it, Tomahawk as well. I suppose it is also. The fact that they all have other things that they might be into first and they're going to put their time into first and this is all a side project for them. For a band to get big or, you know, to have continued success, particularly at an alternative rock level, you need to put in your, you know, 10,000 hours each and tour and, you know, make it your main thing in your life. Yeah, and this isn't the main thing in any of their lives, probably, even though it was 
critically and artistically successful they're probably still like oh we've still all got other projects and it can get there can be a bit of friction as well like if you're in a band and you start devoting excessive amounts of time to what the rest of your band sees as a side project it can cause a bit of tension because mm-hmm. they're like no we need you here we need to do this this is how we make our living so that's an indulgence so yeah you end up not not devoting the time to the tour and not devoting the time to the press for it and it just doesn't push on as much but i mean yeah it's, it's an interesting phenomenon um, but the record stands the test of time yeah it does it does that's um, a good point that song should have, should have made it one of the biggest bands in the world because it is that good i mean i think they possibly almost sabotaged it though by calling it that yeah it was like they also possibly sabotaged it by putting Nicola Verri in the video <laughs> which would have been another nexus link by the way mm. yeah there you go uh, but I, I think also Mike Patton's voice in that song is just tremendous Like it's it's all the different parts of him. It's like the creepiness. It's the big, big vocal, the sustained notes. It's just it's, it's an excellent mm-hmm. CV for for his capabilities. Um, you can't win the the third one. Uh, that really jazzy, cabaret, loungy, uneasy sort of thing with the the wood blocks and stuff like that. It reminded me of a song called Starry D on the um, King for a Day album by Faith No More as well. It's just a sleazebag approach to writing yeah. music, but it, it, it really works. It's also a great way to slow the album down without slowing it down too much. It doesn't get all soppy. It doesn't get too introverted. Yeah, it, it shows that it's, you know, going to be diverse and play out the full dynamic, but it's still... Pacey. It's not a ballad. Yeah, the, yeah. Groove, the groove is fucking tremendous in the song. Yeah, the drum really. machine really works. His vocal that. gets good in it as well. Like, he, he uses it well. By the end of it, it's quite aggressive. Um, track four, Mayday. Again, John Stenier. Yeah. All over it. choppy song it's, it's this really nasty kind of feel to it the bass drum is always like peaking as well and breaking up which sounds fucking really cool man yeah um, there's a sick as in like like, like <laughs> what the kids say sick a really sick riff in that chorus like dead evil yeah um, and that wail that Mike Patton does where his vocals just escalate and escalate and escalate over the, the, the chorus it's, it's just brilliant Also, there's a guitar solo in that one that is just hideous, mm-hmm. like absolutely razor sharp guitar solo. I like the way the vocals are panned with the CB radio effect and different, like across like this the spectrum and all that. And mm-hmm. you get guitars usually often just like in the bottom left hand corner and all that. And I like how you moved your face away from yeah. the microphone there to try and yeah. impersonate. It was weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, the fifth track, Rock Gut, is probably the most subtle, I think, uh, certainly at that point. Um, but it becomes very schizophrenic and it, it, it's a really restless tune it starts off like it's going to go in one direction goes in a completely different direction and then it's got that that motif where he's kind of going do 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 it's just it's
him again being a sleaze merchant. Yeah, it's and the weird. It's, it's kind of a good juncture between like the weirdness of Mike Patton and like the straight up like rock bandness. Yeah, of of Tomahawk when they want to be. Um, track six, Captain Midnight. I said I was going to come back to this earlier on. I absolutely adore this song. Like this song, the Captain Midnight effect. Like I said, is something that I've used to sum up when you have a bit in a song that you know fine well is so good, you're only going to do it once. So that everybody has to go back and listen to the full mm-hmm. song again. Captain Midnight is the reducto ad absurdum of that. It's just fucking terrific. So subtle. Again, John Stanier absolutely killing it. Sounds like almost like a kind of breakbeat thing he does in the build up to that. And Mike Patton is doing this sort of a uh, scatting over it. Um, it's like beatboxing, right? Yeah, it's, it's really, really odd the, the approach to it. Uh, he brings in those falsettos, and the bass starts like just the bass swells up. It doesn't get played, mm-hmm. so like he's just using it almost like just using the volume control to do it. And then there's a couple of moments where the drum beat goes from like rim clicks to actually full, fully played, but then it's just very subtly done so it doesn't quite, and then it does the big explosion. And when that song explodes, it's just everybody in that band at absolute maximum performance. It's fucking brilliant. That huge, like the, the huge notes, especially the showcase Mike Patton as a singer, are just incredible. Uh, I love the production in that song as well. It's really, really brilliantly executed. Uh, and then it has that really gradual fade out where obviously the first time I heard it, I was like, oh my God, you have to do that again. Yeah, <laughs> no, they're not going to do that again. Yeah. And you just kind of resign. I've got a playlist on Spotify of just songs that I have to play again because <laughs> they tease you. And it, I suppose it, it, that song is in it. And, uh, Suppose it's it might well be one of the first one like earliest examples examples of yeah. that. It's them fucking with you in the fourth dimension, as in like there's a fourth wall to that which they know you're listening and they're like, right, we just did that. I'm not gonna do it again. Fuck you. You're not getting it again. And I mean, I saw them live. I went to see them live on the Mitgas tour down in Nottingham. Again, like live, you can't put it on again. Mm-hmm. You're just like waiting and waiting and waiting for the moment, and you're trying to get everybody to shut up around you because you're like, I'm only gonna get to do this once. So. Fucking wait for your beer. Okay. Um, track seven, natural disaster. Los volcanes soplan alto. Y esto no es un examen. I love this. I love, like, Mike Patton's uh, very multilingual. I think he, he had a an Italian wife or girlfriend for a long time. It's got a record called Model Kane, isn't it? Which is just Italian. And, uh, <laughs> it's an Italian record. Cane. And, uh, yeah, and he's uh, fluent in Spanish as well. And he does that in a lot of different things. Again, King for a Day, uh, Fool for a Lifetime, the Faith No More album has a track in it called uh, Carallo Voador, I think. I can't remember the title exactly. Posso dirigir e agora aparece 
but it's sung in Spanish and or partly partly in Spanish. And even the feel of the track's really similar to this sort of like almost like finger clicking mm-hmm. kind of groove, like wood blocks instead of snare drums. Really, really, really nice. Um, and the the way they end this album as well is is quite understated. So they go into track eight is when the stars begin to fall. Which kind of sounds uh, that one for me sounds closer to the first the first record. It's it's a bit sharper. It's got that kind of wandering, meandering guitar thing, and again, the, the chorus relies on his approach to vocals being unusual. And that's kind of the last loud point, really, because well, no, it's not the last loud point. I beg your pardon. There is one redemption, but Hairlip, the ninth track, is this really subdued kind of Pat and Dennison trade off. It's Again, CD is pretty vicious and eccentric. It's got this line in it called "I was awake all through the surgery," but it's it's quite a quite an understated bit of music. The glockenspiel in it. Um, it really slows the proceedings down. Um, there's also like a really nice use of synth in it that rises and falls, just this kind of like, like almost like a very slow wave that you can hear going through the whole song. I kind of expected after that that we're going to like kick back into something, but they didn't. They brought in this song on Harlem Clown, which starts with a, a loop of someone saying, I don't know how to read notes. I don't know how to read notes. I don't know how to read Uh, it gets very experimental and I think actually is the closest to get to the Anonymous album on a- at any other point in their career or mm. of this band at least and then they finish in this song Action 13F14 3 Distract the opponent 4 Disable or be disabled Is some I don't know someone reading from the basic principles of hand to hand combat, and then just it's like a spoken word thing over this like acoustic guitar, which is the first mm-hmm. time you really hear that the falsetto vocal. But the very very end of that song at two minutes twenty, they they, they hit the heaviest point of the album, which is just pure production, just brutal. It's fucking really really caustic, furious ending. And I think that's a nice bookend on it as well. And you're just like, you're just over the 40 minute mark. Uh, it does have a lot of variety in it. Yeah. Do you know what I find interesting is that, like, this is recorded, was it 2003? Mm-hmm. Um, Released 2003. Yeah. I think so the it's first c- single maybe came out in December 2002. I'm not so, sure. so, like, late 90s, early 2000s is like peak CD time. Because this is a record that would be very different, I think, if they were thinking about it on two sides. The vinyl. Um, this is a record that flows and 
as just one selection of songs. Um, and they didn't release it on vinyl at the time. I know in the box set, it's mm. on vinyl. Yeah. And Captain side Mid- one, Captain Midnight begins the second side. side. Two, yeah. Uh, but I just wonder if the, the playlist or, you know, the, the order, the track order would have been different on vinyl if they thought about it. But it's like a record defined by the fact that they're just making it for CD or, yeah. you know. That's that's a really interesting observation. I think you're right. I think the second side, especially the last three tracks, would have been somewhat different mm-hmm. if it had been a purely, yeah, if it had been brought out in an era, era either earlier or indeed now where they were relying yeah. on greater vinyl sales. Like, perhaps that would have been a big factor because it definitely goes to a different place for the last 10, 15 minutes, um, albeit finishes with a bang. It's weird how that sort of uh, sort of constriction on a band can define or refine where they go with their art. Yeah, you know, um, and how the structure is sort of defined by that by the medium. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, I guess to 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 sum it up, every one of these guys has, I would say, at least one other album to their name from their other parts of their career that should be in this discography. Mm-hmm. There is an exceptional collection of musicians. Um, and for my money, up there, definitely top three best supergroups in terms of, can, well, I don't say consistency because Anonymous is a little bit of a dip, but it, at peak performance, just untouchable. Mm-hmm. I, I, I I fucking love this record. I think it's it's tremendous. And I do get why there'll be a lot of people who will get a bit sniffy because the first one is a little bit rougher and maybe that's endearing. God damn, this is a really, really good album. Yeah, no, I think this band, this record defines this band in its clarity of its of the vision that they wanted. Yeah. And when I want to hear Tomahawk, I put this record on because I know it's like pure distilled Tomahawk. Uh, and it's rare in a supergroup as well that the band has such a defined sound and personality that's so clear. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, rely on the other projects it is its own stuff um yeah so i'm very happy to put this in yeah no i mean I, I'm, this is a big in for me like uh like city by strapping young lad this is a record that i've not stopped listening to since i first started so i was put it on yeah had, had you listened to much tomahawk at uh, all i've never heard them before and how did this hit you because i know you you were you seemed quite positive on it when i spoke to you uh, when i first when i first put it on as soon as i heard Vape this day i was like i'm in you know that's that that vocal that meg Patton does the, the the pure patented like I guess early faith no more kind of like soaring high notes yeah is brilliant but also like through the Peep and Tom record which I love um I really like his weird vocal quirks and his weird vocal playing and all that that he does which has got a lot of it on this record but not to the point where it gets distracting yeah um I think that's that's it this is like such a nice balance of yeah. all those different sensibilities that that guy has especially. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a really taut record. You know what I mean? Like it, 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 it just gets to the point really quickly, and it stays with you. I think, unlike this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like oh, I've been no. here for fucking years. <laughs> 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 All right, folks. Well, uh, I think we're pretty unanimous on that. So please go and vote it in. Yeah, have a vote. Prove us wrong. Yeah, don't dare. I don't like being proven wrong. Uh, Mark, I believe it's your choice next week, sir. Yeah, so next week we're going to do Cancel for Cure by LP. LP, yep. you say. Is that a member of another pop group? 
He may have been known to be in another, he was in another group called Company Flow. You might be thinking of those guys. I'm not sure that's the one. <laughs> oh, he's Chris also, is racking his hip hop historical um, knowledge here. My encyclopedia de hip hop. He's also in that band, another really cute obscure band called Run the Jewels. Run the Jewels. Yeah. All right. Okay. So LP of Run the Jewels, but in his solo guys. Which he has to like. To, I'll talk about this in the episode. But he has to me. Like I knew him before Run the Jewels, so he's like always been LP. Run the Jewels is the side thing. He's always been an LP to me yeah. as well. Has he always been LP to you, Chris? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, guys. All right, thanks very much. 